This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 210 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, hopefully, you enjoyed last week's episode or last week's intervention, I guess I should say. Thanks again to Alex for being a good sport about the whole thing. And then, of course, to Steve for being my partner in crime. And like I said at the end of that episode, it was really just a fun way to get an update on Alex's hobby pyramid or uh, lack thereof. Now, as for today's episode, I've got a few things I'm excited to share with you. First, I want to touch on a few tidbits from last week's Tops Conference. I know some of you are probably thinking, isn't that actually baseball content? Well, number one, no, there was a little bit of basketball And even if there wasn't, I think some of the topics that were discussed will be a part of the basketball card world when the Fanatics takeover is fully in place. So um, I do want to touch on that stuff a little bit. In addition to that, I've got a couple pieces of mail that I've been waiting to tell you about. And then in today's main segment, I'm going to talk about a recent card show I attended and some of the observations I made while I was there. So you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Okay, so a little over a week ago, Topps held its 2023 industry conference in Phoenix, Arizona. And while I didn't personally attend, there are a number of different recaps online. I read through a few of those, and I want to try to break things down as they pertain to basketball cards, or really as they could pertain to basketball cards in the future. And as I've said before, I don't like to do a lot of speculative content, But some of the ideas that were discussed will be ideas that will likely carry over as Topps transitions into the basketball license. So I'm not going to talk about the Babe Ruth, I think they were called Retrofractors, or the Tom Brady baseball autographs, but I do want to touch on a couple points they discussed regarding relics and autographs. And autographs are probably an ideal place to start, seeing as that was the only true basketball news we got over the course of the conference. And it involves a product that's already been announced, the 2022 Topps Chrome McDonald's All-American set. So this is not an NBA set, but it's a bit of a throwback to some of the McDonald's All-American high school sets that Topps did in the uh, mid to late 2000s, although now it's Chrome. And maybe you even remember seeing Durant's McDonald's XRC from 2006. Anyway, Topps announced that Bronny James will have autographs in this product. Now, I still can't see myself, you know, running to pick this up. It's not really a a product that appeals to me all that much. But in my mind, the addition of Bronny James at least makes the product itself a lot more appealing. And honestly, I'm pretty surprised. You know, I know, you know, Bronny is his own person, 
but I fully expected him to follow in his father's footsteps and sign an exclusive with Upper Deck, where, you know, he would probably be relegated to Goodwin Champions, and then they'd have one more excuse to recycle that 2003 exquisite RPA design, although in this case, I think it would be legitimate, right? It wouldn't be um, just an excuse this time. Um, that's not to say that won't eventually happen. I figure it will, but the point here being he's signing for tops first, which was definitely not expected. And speaking of LeBron and his whole crew, I might as well mention some news that, to the best of my knowledge, was not announced at the Tops conference, but it fits well in this portion of the recap and was released around the same time. It's relevant, so I figure it's worth mentioning here. Woj, of all people, that's right, Woj on Twitter, right, in ESPN, um, he tweeted some hobby news. He wrote, Clutch's head of basketball, Omar Wilkes, has joined Fanatic Collectibles as head of athlete relations per sources. Wilkes repped Trey Young, Anthony Edwards, OG Ananobi, and now takes on role as ambassador between burgeoning Fanatic Collectibles and athlete entertainment world. Now, one of the things that I read in multiple recaps of the Tops Conference was that Fanatic CEO Mike Mahan wants to, quote, eliminate redemptions. So I can't help but to hope that this clutch move is a move in the right direction. I can't say for sure that it is. You know, we really don't know. I don't know what all it entails. But if this guy can figure out a way to motivate athletes to sign stuff on card in a timely manner, well, he's going to be a hobby hero. And, you know, he can start with his own group of clients because I don't think OG Ananobi has signed anything for Panini since his rookie season. And that was 2017. And I really can't blame him because there's no incentive for him to do so. The amount of money just isn't worth it, or at least it hasn't been in the past. And I've heard that players are going to have more of an ownership stake in this new licensing agreement, so hopefully we're in for some good changes. I guess only time will tell. Now, I was also very interested to see what Topps planned, uh, or Fanatics, I guess, as a whole, plans for memorabilia cards. You might remember episode 145, where I did an entire main segment titled Six Ideas for Fanatics Branded Memorabilia Cards. And two things that I really harped on was the fact that Panini has seemingly abandoned game-dated relics and also meaningful event-worn relics, like stuff from Draft Night or the Rookie Photo Shoot. And I'm sure we'll still see some of those things sprinkled in here and there, but uh, they don't put the emphasis on them like they used to. Now, based off of what they said at this conference, it looks like Tops could be making these things a priority again, they mentioned making more milestone cards, which is something they do some with baseball already. Uh, for example, when a high-profile prospect gets his first MLB hit, Tops will acquire that base. Uh, if it's a single, they'll take first base. If it's a double second and so on, and they use them for cards. So I like that a lot. I mean, we've already seen bases from the World Series, so that's nothing new to Tops, like I said, but it looks like they want to keep uh, keep doing that, and that's something they can get from the league easily. So I think for us uh, memorabilia collectors, that's a good compromise. Now, will it devalue those relics? You know, maybe. Maybe they flood the market with those, but, um, you know, if you just want the uh, memorable or the uh, meaningful material itself, then I think that's a good thing. You know, a lot of people will have access to that. Uh, now, while game-worn jerseys can be really expensive. There are other things that are part of the games that they could utilize instead. So, you know, I mentioned bases for baseball, but it's got me thinking about basketball. Like, why hasn't Panini grabbed LeBron's chalk bottle when he's done with it? 
They could take uh, a chalk toss image, right? We've all talked about those in different cards and those have had their run here in the hobby. Why don't they take an image like that and put little pieces of the of the chalk from the bottle in there that he didn't get to? Um, you know, and it, they could make unique relics out of that or, or you know, let's see some creativity. I'm not saying that's the best idea, but it, it would be something different. So I want to see that. And I think maybe with Tops, we'll get it. Now, at this conference, Tops also mentioned a relic set for their update set called First Stitch. I think that's a play on the word of uh, first pitch, right? Where supposedly they're going to take the first Fanatics jersey off the line for rookies and traded players and cut them up and put them in the products. I'd like to know a little more about these because I don't think they specified if they're going to be game worn or not, right? If it's the day, you know, the debut jersey, that would be incredible, but it doesn't sound like that's going to be the case. I think it would be more like um, a press conference jersey, and and I suppose that's not the worst thing in the world, though. It still could be kind of cool, provided they state that information on the card. And and you guys know, even on the basketball side, I love press conference photos on cards. Don't ask me why. I guess it's just a sign of something new to come. The one that sticks out to me is is a 97, I think a 97 card of Chris Mullen at his Pacers press conference. I, I always loved that card growing up. I think I was just so excited about that Mullen move. So anyway, you know, that's something they could do. Um, with that being said, I like some of the things that Tops talked about at this conference. There were some other things that seemed pretty goofy, but I'm going to try not to fixate on them. I'm not even going to bring those up today. I've said it before. Basketball cards are in a bad spot right now with Panini, so I'm ready for change. And that doesn't mean, you know, just because we get a change doesn't mean everything's going to be fixed. Change just for change's sake doesn't always work. It still has to be purposeful. But, um, you know, the things that were said this past week seemed like they could be purposeful. So I'm excited to see what Topps has in store for us. And now all we can do is wait, because unless something changes, uh, specifically fanatics buying panini right it's going to be a while before these changes hit the basketball side of things okay on to the mail and i've made several big purchases as of late so i think the mail is going to slow down here soon i'm gonna have to do something else to get that dopamine rush or or maybe focus on you know low end ron artest numbered cards or something to keep moving towards hobby goals uh, but still get all that stuff in my mailbox. But I do have two pieces in particular that I'm excited to share with you today. The first was a gift from a YouTube subscriber and fellow teacher or fellow educator named Jason. He sent me a nice message saying he knew that I had started collecting Paul George stuff again and he had something for me. So a package shows up and it's a 2010-2011 Donra Sapphire rookie of Paul George, number 37 and 49. And he also added a really nice note in there as well. Now, what Jason didn't know was that 2010 Donruss is actually one of my favorite Panini sets of all time. And I know, you know, if I ask you to, to you know, guess what that was, that probably wouldn't be one of your top five guesses. So I'd like to take a few moments today to explain why. I know Donruss has been around in basketball for a while now, but for a long time, it was not a basketball product, and it had never been one until this 2010 set when it debuted um, as, in my opinion, a high-quality, low-end product. And don't confuse it with Donruss of today. Uh, that's, you know, the Donruss of today is more or less a mirror image of hoops, and I don't know why they've, they've chosen to make the set so redundant. Um, maybe it's just easier that way. I'm guessing it has to do with, it's effort-based, right? 
But um, 2010 Donruss used a little thicker glossy cardstock. It's probably still technically 35 point, but it feels a little more durable than a standard Donruss card today. Maybe it's the gloss, but um, they had a borderless design that was reminiscent of the older Donruss baseball stuff with the ribbons and such. And then all of the veteran base cards featured in-game photos. So like I said, I thought the product itself was just really nice. And then on top of that, this product for me is really nostalgic because when it first came out, I had just moved to a new city and I'll spare you the details here, but things were not going like I thought they would. And I was kind of bummed out. And as you can probably guess, money was tight during this time frame too. So in the midst of all this, my treat to myself was grabbing a Donruss blaster from Target every few weeks, or maybe it was even more frequent than that. It might've been every week. I'm not sure. I tried to space it out though. And, um, so I, you know, I really enjoyed this product and the cards came in handy too, because I ended up getting a lot of them signed at Bobcats games down the road. This is when I was living in Charlotte. So, um, anyway, I want to thank Jason again for that Donruss card. He added a nice note in there. It was a really fun blast from the past in more ways than one. Um, so all in all that, that was a really fun mail day. So I'll try to post that up on my social media so you guys can see it if I haven't done so already. Okay, the second package I want to talk about is one uh, that I'm also very excited about. And you've heard me you know, say that I'm looking for these cards. Multiple times people ask me, hey, what cards do you still want to find? I want to find 2005, 2006 Topps Big Game uh, Jumbo Patches for Pacers. And specifically, my PC guy, Ron Artest. So this week I got one of the in-the-name nameplate patches, uh, the letter A of Ron Artest. And I know I've talked about this set some on my countdown as well. So this isn't the first nameplate set, but all of the other ones uh, prior to that were pretty small. We're talking like 10 or 15 players. This nameplate set is huge. And some players even had home and away variations. Um, now, this is a product that I window shopped quite a bit back in 2005. And uh, that's back when I was in high school. And I just saved pictures of the cards on my hard drive because... I couldn't really afford any of them at the time. Um, and I, I wish I could have because it still would have been significantly cheaper than they are now. But um, instead, I just had to create my own little digital museum. But I've always liked relic cards. And this was one of the first accessible products that featured a giant jumbo patch checklist. And, and I say accessible because there was also a really nice jumbo patch set in Ultimate Collection the year prior. Um, but anyway... In addition to the in the name uh, set in big game, there was a set called Selective Swatches that I consider to be a sort of precursor to Immaculate. So I really liked this product. And the point being, I, I know I said all that, I didn't have any of them back in the day. And I spent the last decade or so slowly tracking them down for Pacers players, including my PC guy, Ron Artest. And um, I got one of the letter T's on eBay in January of 2016. And that's been it for our test nameplate patches. And I know where uh, the majority of them are with a couple different collectors. And one of them even told me he's taken it to his grave. And, and you know what? He's, he's a nice guy. I've had good conversations with him. I don't say that as a slight. It's just a funny conversation we've had. So I just figured in similar fashion, the letter A in our test was stashed away somewhere too. Well, seemingly out of nowhere, this thing popped up on eBay and uh, one of my friends reached out because it was being sold via his local card shop. 
and he gave me a little bit of background about the card. I guess the person that was having the shop sell it was the person that pulled this card. So, you know, I've been looking for this for all these years and it's just been chilling in a box somewhere for the better part of two decades. So I put my mega bid in. Um, unfortunately, someone else did too. I didn't ask. I didn't really probe around to find out who. But anyway, I got it. And one of the more interesting components about this card is it's from a number 91 jersey. Ron changed his number a lot over the course of his career. In fact, even with just the Pacers alone, he wore three different numbers in a very short amount of time. But he only wore number 91 during the brawl season. And between injuries and suspensions, you know, he started the season hurt. The brawl happened in November, uh, so he didn't play very many games at all, and then, you know, cut that in half for road games, which included the, the infamous game in Detroit. So there weren't a lot of possibilities for games that he wore this jersey. And you might remember seeing an old blowout thread where I went through Getty Images and tried to match all the pinstripes from this relic to a specific game date. That took a lot of time, and the end result was I still didn't have a match. So I think it's likely that this was given to Tops in a batch of jerseys from the team that year, and he might not have even used it in a game. And I, I will say I have pretty high confidence in Tops. Um, you know, when they say they got a, a jersey from game uh, or from the NBA, I, I feel pretty confident that they did. But in this case, I think they might have gotten it from the team. Maybe it was a team-issued jersey that was intended for that season, but never got used because of the brawl. Now, I want to be clear, that's purely speculation. There were a few games I couldn't get pictures of. Maybe it matched up with one of those. Either way, though, I'm fine with that. Normally, it would be a bigger deal, but uh, there's some important context at play here, and it makes for a really cool relic from one of the more memorable seasons in Ron's career, and then, of course, the franchise at large. So, very happy to have landed that one. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to remind you that I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. These links cost you absolutely nothing, just an extra minute of your time, but they help support this show. So to access them, simply go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www waxmuseumpodcast.com This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, so this past weekend, I had all intentions of going to one of my local shows and doing my usual thing, you know, walking around, digging in boxes, shooting some video, that kind of stuff. But I had a friend that wanted to go with me, and we used to set up some together, so... We were talking some the night before, and the idea of setting up came up again, and that led to me messaging the promoter, and thankfully they had a table available, so I rushed to get most of my stuff repriced because it had been a long time since I set up, and the next morning we headed that way. Now, I've said it before, but I think setting up at a show every now and then is a valuable experience in that it gives you a different perspective on things. You see the effort and costs that go into setting up at a show, you hear all the things people say to dealers that get on their nerves. On the flip side of that, you figure out what things collectors and customers do that work with you, and then you can put them in your toolbox and save them for the next time you're back on the other side. So I definitely encourage everyone to set up at a show at least once, even if you think you're going to take a little loss financially. I know that sounds crazy, uh, but the knowledge that you gain is worth it. And luckily, a lot of my inventory is stuff I've found in lots or, or it's old PC cards that I'm upgrading. So I usually do all right. 
as long as I space it out enough. I wouldn't certainly wouldn't set up every month. Now, another thing I like about setting up at shows is that it kind of gives you a pulse on where things are at in the hobby. And you have to be careful because there are other factors at play here. For example, I go to shows in Florida, and right now there are shows everywhere in Florida. So I think that has an effect on each and every one. But what I try to do is take the things I've heard from people in other states and then compare those experiences to the ones I'm having myself in person. And I think that gives me a pretty good idea of where the hobby's at. And I'd like to share a couple observations with you today. The first one, I'm sure you've heard the narrative that um, there aren't enough collectors to support a booming market. And I guess I called that a narrative there, but it's a well-known reality at this point. The data supports that. We're living it. Um, And then the way people were buying at this show, well, it seemed to back all of that up as well. Because during a lot of negotiations, I heard people say things like, yeah, but I can only get this much when I sell it. Uh, And people realize that not everything is as as desirable now, and they're aggressively working the margins so they can move stuff on the spot. And there's nothing wrong with that. Anyone that sets up or buys and sells, they have to do that to an extent. And people do it online all the time. So I'm not criticizing that. The issue that we've run into, though, is there aren't enough collectors to sell to at the end of the line. So I'm not going to try and predict the bottom or anything like that. You guys know that I, you know, I typically shy away from the market talk. I don't want to get too involved in that. But at this pace, it looks like things will continue to drop, notably prices. And that's a direct result of interest dropping, which I think will eventually lead to more people dropping out of the hobby. And I've talked about it multiple times over the last couple years. All of this stuff is cyclical. If you've been around long enough, you've seen it before. It's just shocking to a lot of people because either, you know, they're still in their first market cycle or maybe they've been in one, but it's just been such a long time to them. Neither way, despite the fact that plenty of people moved in and out of this show this weekend, I saw some things that reinforced the reality that there probably aren't enough collectors to support the current market. Okay, guys, allow me to interrupt for a moment here to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 29 million trading cards from baseball superstars like Aaron Judge to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man. ComC is something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. Okay, Another thing that stood out to me this past weekend at the show was the number of kids that were there, which was a lot more than it used to be, and I think that's awesome. I even observed a couple younger boys that were there with their, you know, somebody that seemed like their dad. I think that was a pretty safe guess, and he didn't seem super engaged with the cards themselves, so my guess is that they convinced him to take them there. So if that's the case, kudos to that father, because I I didn't go to shows growing up. Um, I didn't even really know they were a thing. But my dad was the same way. He never really engaged in the hobby with me, but I remember times where he took me to Target because I wanted to spend my allowance on, you know, 1998 Tops packs or whatever. The point being, he didn't seem to, you know, get collectibles, but he saw I was interested and he let me do my thing. Um, With that being said, it felt like a lot of the kids at this show were way more aggressive than they used to be, even during the pandemic shows. A couple of kids walked up to the table and, and kind of barked at me to see if I was buying football. Um, kind of a real aggressive pitch. And, um, you know, then, of course, several kids wanted my help in their trade-up challenge. Now, you know, I've, I'm not anti-kids at all. 
Uh, I think you're going to see by the end of this, I'm, I'm, you know, it's completely the opposite here. I've worked in education for a decade, so I get that awkward phase where they're trying to learn how to, you know, engage with people or to, you know, do try new things, right? So I do try to engage with all of these kids. Um, that doesn't mean I participate in every trade up challenge, but I at least look through their stuff and, and try to give them compliments along the way. I don't always see that when I'm walking the floor though. So this was more apparent to me setting up um, and, and seeing that made me realize, well, all of these kids coming into the hobby and, and coming to these shows are a good thing. There's not enough people teaching and guiding them. And maybe they haven't asked for help yet. And uh, us hobby veterans, myself included, need to be a little more proactive about meeting them where they're at. But right now, the end result of them not having that guidance is they gravitate towards mediums that are more accessible to them, like YouTube or TikTok. And they learn that way, you know, hence the rise in the trade-up challenges and such, because their biggest teachers are all the card show thespians that have risen up over the course of the last couple years, and they're just mimicking a lot of that behavior. Let me preface this by saying, you know, not everyone that makes those card show videos, they're not bad people, but they do have a lot of influence, and there are a lot of people watching that. So I would say this, you know, whether you have that channel or not, if you have any sort of influence over younger people in the hobby, please, please, please take the time to support them and teach them. Let them practice interacting with you. You know, for lack of a better term, they need reps, right? They need the practice. And let's see if we can't keep the hobby fun for them for the long term because their current role models are probably more representative of the market and the style of the last couple years. And like I said earlier, a lot of that seems to be changing again. And speaking of changing, one thing I appreciated about this Bay Area show this weekend is that they recognized the influx of shows in the area. I've mentioned that before. And they made a very intentional effort to change things up and make it more of an experience. So there used to be a $5 admission fee. They went out, they got a sponsor. Now that's waived. They also brought in a handful of local athletes to sign for charity. And it was really cheap too. It was like $10 an athlete. So there were a couple of older wrestlers there. I think Bushwhacker Luke and Brutus the Barber, who I knew from watching documentaries and old shows and such. So it was nice to see them, but I didn't really have anything I wanted them to sign. They also had former pitcher Mike Torres, who just so happens to be in the 68 Tops baseball set that I've slowly chipped away at over the years. I'm trying to get every single card signed. Um, after adding Mr. Torres, I'm now at 229 out of 598. So I know I'll never finish it with multiple mantles and Clemente's, but it's been a fun little side project, especially when I can get some of these guys in person, which this card show allowed me the opportunity to add one, one more. My favorite autograph guest though, was former NBA player, Kenny Anderson. And I know when people think about Kenny Anderson, they you know, they think of his run with the Nets or maybe even his time with the Celtics. Well, I like to think of his short little stint with the Pacers. Obviously, I'm in the minority there. Um, I, I've said it before. My favorite era of basketball and collecting is from like 2003 to 2005. Well, Kenny appeared in 44 regular season games and then four playoff games for the Pacers in the 03-04 season. So, of course, I had to ask him about that. You might have seen that video on my YouTube channel. If not, I've got a clip of that for you here. I want to play it for you real quick. You were starting for a while over Tinsley. I started uh, half the year. He played to finish it. Right. I was there. We lost to Detroit. 
I know. They won it that I, year. That was I crazy. Know, he got a very good team. And I know uh, Ron Artest always speaks so highly. Of course, being yeah. a New York guy, yeah, yeah, Queensbridge yeah. guy. So, yeah, thank you so much. He mentioned Detroit there. Of course, that brought up all sorts of horrible memories. You know, Tayshawn Prince's block and all that stuff. Anyway, he ended up in a few sets as a pacer that season, and I decided to have him sign his 2003-2004 Fleer Platinum base card. And I asked him if he'd sign his nickname, and he was nice enough to add that as well. So thanks again to Kenny. His charity of choice was Gaines Hope, which is a nonprofit in the Tampa Bay area. So you might want to check them out. And now, of course, I'm I'm looking at other Kenny Anderson cards to see what all's out there. It's kind of got me wanting to see, you know, what else I can get, even if it's not Pacers stuff. So all in all, it was a pretty fun day at the card show. I didn't buy a single card, although a friend gifted me a pretty rare Jermaine O'Neal Finest X-Fractor, number to 15. You might have seen that on my social media. So thank you, Robert, who goes by 23dead on IG. I really appreciate that. All right, well, there you have it. Like I said, I didn't buy a single card, but I still had a great day. Uh, If you have card shows around you, I encourage you to try to be active in that scene. And I I know some people don't, or maybe you do, and your schedules might not allow for it. If not, then I hope you were able to experience it vicariously through my little recap there. Maybe there was something that I talked about today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under Podcast or Twitter under the handle at WaxMuseumPC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>